As they were leaving, I'll tell a little story. I think I was a teenager the first time I heard my uncle say that his view of um, what he thought he'd learned about people is that most people, as they get older, they get to be more and more like themselves. And even as a teenager, I thought that was kind of scary. His point was that basically people that are sour and grumpy get to be more and more so as they get older. And sweet people just seem to get (laughs) sweeter. And you know, through my adult life, that kind of haunts me because I think, what direction am I going? Um, This morning's sermon is an area that the Lord, through the years, has worked on me and helped me with. um, Because I think as a young man, my concern was that when I got old, that someday... I would open my dictionary and look up the word curmudgeon and my picture would be in there. Um, But the Lord is gracious and he helps us grow. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a loving, caring Father. We thank you for your, your gentle, loving kindness. We also just thank you and praise you and worship you for your righteousness and your goodness. Thank you for the correction that you give us and discipline, that you train us as your children for our good. Lord, we pray for that and ask for that this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can have full confidence that you are going to accomplish the work that you have promised to do in your people, both individually and collectively, building your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that this morning would be honoring to you and that you would work do some of that work in us this morning, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a verse right in the dead in the middle of Genesis that um, has always intrigued my wife and me. We've always, she, I don't know, probably early when we knew each other, there is such a neat verse in Genesis where... Um, the record of when Abraham died. And it says, these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived. He lived 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and satisfied. And he was gathered to his people and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him. If you have even a passing familiarity with Abraham's life, he had a hard life. He had a lot of tragedy in his life, some of it self-inflicted, some of it not. But apparently he ended life satisfied. And how did that happen? How can we finish our life satisfied and not a sour old grumpy curmudgeon? Well, there's a lot in the Scripture about that, and, and we're going to look at that. And what we're going to find in the Scripture is it's going to acknowledge that all of us in our lives, each one of us, our experiences are different, but all of us have ups and downs in our life. We have successes and pleasant things, and we have failures and hardships. And what the Scripture is going to show us is what is our attitude about those things? That's what's going to determine whether we end life with our picture in the dictionary next to curmudgeon or if our picture next to the word satisfied with what God had given us. So 
one thing I want to say is Abraham lived to be, what did it say? 175 years old. For you young people, don't tune this out. This message applies. I have, my father is 90 or 91, 90, about to turn 91. I've got grandchildren that are nine. My children and I land in the middle. My kids are in the 30s. I'm in my 60s. This same message applies to all of us. I don't know whether my father's going to live another week. I don't know for a fact whether my nine-year-old grandchildren are going (laughs) to live another week. But what we're going to look at this morning is not just for old people. It's for all of us at every stage of our life. Can we say we're satisfied? So we're going to look at two things. First of all, what the scripture says about how to think about the, the um, how to think about the successes and achievements that we have in life, the things that we like. How do we think about those things? And then next, we're going to look at how do we think about all the failures and the hardships, whether they're self-inflicted or do things other people did to us or natural disasters. How do we think about those? And that's going to determine how we view our life. So first, um, what we're going to talk about is how to view the achievements and successes that we have. And what we're going to find in Scripture, and it's what we read in Deuteronomy 8, is that we need to recognize that all of our achievements and successes are gifts from God. And we need to be thankful to Him for those things. So let's think about this. If there's something, and I'm not even talking about free gifts here. This is focusing on things that we achieve. We've actually put some effort into it and we've done something. We've accomplished things. And that's enjoyable, isn't it? That's pleasant. You know, if if we're working at the hospital and we put it, put in a 10 or 12 hour shift and at the end of the day, you know, it's hard and we're tired. But there's a certain satisfaction in that, isn't there? And having done a day's work, there's a satisfaction in that. Or if you're a farmer, when you finally get that last round bale for this cutting stacked and you step back and look at that and you think about all the work you've done and you're tired and you're sweaty and you're dirty, that feels good, doesn't it? And I I hope you enjoy it. There's a satisfaction in that. Or maybe in, in hobbies or skills or crafts, maybe music, maybe you've gone another step in your development of your musical skills with your musical instrument or you've mastered a piece or a new technique. Isn't that fun? That's that's enjoyable, and we're supposed to enjoy that. But when that happens, how do we think about that? Do we just pat ourselves on the back, or do we thank the Lord for that? Well, that's what we did. I'm not. We're not going to completely read this in Deuteronomy 8 again. Uh, But we'll just highlight some things because this is exactly what God is talking to Israel about when he's leading them into the promised land. Now, every one of us in this room, let alone people that lived in different periods in history and different times of the world or different places in the world, we're in different circumstances and the particular things that God gives us will vary. I just spent last month on an island in Papua New Guinea. And my friends that are born and grow up in Bonacan Village, 
don't have the same set of resources and opportunities that I have being born and raised in the U.S. But they do have them. And they can decide how they're going to use them and how they're going to respond to it. Uh, when you look down in the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's reminding them that all of the resources that he's going to give them in this particular place, things like good water, um, soil that will grow crops. He talks a lot about basically agriculture, but he also talks about mineral rights, iron and copper. That means exactly what it sounds like it means. This is not just metaphorical for some pie in the sky thing. God is saying, I'm giving you a lot of neat resources and I'm giving you the opportunity to use those things. My wife's family and my family both. I, I was thinking about my wife's family because he talks about minerals and ores and, and iron. Um, a lot of my wife and her mom, Ruby, a lot of their family were farmers. And there's a lot about agriculture in here. That's why I used hay. A lot of their rel uh, extended relatives are out toller way raising hay. But a lot of their relatives also worked in a steel mill in Pueblo, and they were able to prosper working at the steel mill. Those are all those are all resources given by God. The things that we use, we have to work to use them, but God's the one that gave us those things. Most of you know I'm a veterinarian, and most of my adult life I learned I earned my living as a veterinarian, and I just kept thinking about microscopes and medicine. You know, I worked, but I spent. There wasn't a day went by that I'd spent a lot of time looking through a microscope uh, and using medicine. And those are all made from ore and resources that God has given us. You know, I was thinking about we had kids and now we have grandkids and not everybody in here has children. But I bet you've got brothers and sisters. Or you've got nieces and nephews. One of the things that we really like to do with our kids and especially now actually is more fun with our grandkids than it was with our kids. But when they come over. The little kids, we've got, our kids know where the toys are. They know where the blank paper and the colors and pencils and crayons are. And they come and we get that out for them. And they use that stuff. And they play. And Karen and I just sit back and just watch. When I was in seminary, we were, we were translating through Hebrew and we were grunting through all the Hebrew grammar and pulling our hair out. That's why I'm bald. And, and uh, we had just finished grinding through the verse in creation where, um, where Adam is naming the animals and it says that God watched to see what he would call them. And I remember all of a sudden my prof just stopped in the middle of all this grammar. And he said, why in the world does it say that? And uh, he said, do you ever just watch kids? And I think that's true. That's what God is doing. His whole intention in making us and giving this world is he wants us to enjoy using the resources that he's given us and the abilities he's given us. We're supposed to do that and enjoy it. But all the while recognizing this is all stuff he gave us. 
My grandkids did not invent and make pencils and paper. In fact, Carrie and I didn't either. We bought it. But, but you get the analogy. We're supposed to do that. Um, but it's not only the resources that he gives us. We see in the second half of this passage in Deuteronomy that the abilities that we have to use those resources are also a gift from God. And we have to acknowledge not all of us have the same abilities. They vary a lot. Um, But we each have whatever it is that God gave us. And so God, what he says in this passage is that the abilities that we have to use those resources are all given to us by God. So be careful. Don't be prideful. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Well, where did your strength come from? Uh, we've got a storage barn in our backyard that my wife and I built. That was our uh, that was our COVID project, and that was a lot of hard work. Uh, we did it when it was 105 degrees. We tore down our old metal storage building that was falling apart and rusting, and and we uh, and we built this barn. and It looks pretty cool, and we put a lot of work into it. Um, but where where did all the material come from that we built it out of? Well, it's all stuff that was made from things God made and gave us to use. But where did the abilities come come from? You know, the Lord has blessed carrying me with with health at this point, and we're able to do that. That's a gift from God. Uh, I think this is one of the things that's harder for us to keep in track and really be conscious of and recognizing that whatever abilities we have to put forth energy and effort and power that makes us want to claim that we're the ones that did it, we tend to forget that that power and ability is something God gave to us and he didn't have to. I mentioned that I'm a veterinarian. Most of my adult life, I earned the bulk of my living working as a veterinarian and, um, and I'll be honest, it took some effort to get through veterinary school and get a degree, okay? I'm willing to admit that I had to work. They did not, A&M did not give me that degree because I'm so good looking. I did have to do something, but how and why was I able to do that? You know, for one thing, God's given me ability to think and study, my wife and I, and I'm sure you do too, we know a lot of people that have pretty serious brain impairment. Either they were born that way or they had some massive cranial trauma in an accident or due to some disease or dementia later in life. They don't have the ability to do that. It's not because anything they did. In the... The fact that I am able to think and go to school, that's a gift from God. Another thing that I've really enjoyed, and my mother has passed away, but my dad is still alive. He's watching. And I talk to them about this. I'm very conscious of the fact that I grew up in a family that loved to learn and loved to read and to learn things. My dad has a Ph.D. from Princeton. My mother only had a high school diploma. But both love to read and learn. And they pass that off to us. In fact, one of my uncles once said my mother was, even though she'd only been through high school, was the most educated woman he'd ever met. And he meant it. 
But I know families that don't have that. I can think of a family that earlier in my life I had a lot to do with them. And it amazed me because I'd never seen that before. Is that they didn't do that. They didn't have books. They didn't read books. And if somebody, if there was a conversation and somebody, this actually happened. Somebody got up and said, well, let me go look that up. And he went to get a book and the family started making fun of them. Well, that's not necessarily a righteous thing, but my only point is that's something I can look back on and think that's a gift God gave me that not everybody has. State tuition. You know, when I went to vet school, that even when I was in professional school, my total tuition and fees was about $300 a semester. That's not because, I know, really, that wasn't even true in state school. When my kids went to school, I thought, what happened? I thought state schools were free. They were when I went, practically. Well, that wasn't because of me or being smart. That's just a situation God happened to put me in. Not everybody had that. I'm very thankful for that. That's just something God gave me. I'm going to share one more thing and hope it comes across properly. When I went down to A&M, my school itself was essentially free. All I had to do was come up with living expenses. I just needed a roof and food to get me through. And you know what? God put me in a situation where I did not have to work. I could just do school. Because my grandparents were poor ranchers out in West Texas. And so you can probably see where this is going. About the time my dad was in high school, they found oil out there. Now, my grandparents are not the Clampets. They didn't move to Beverly Hills and they didn't become rich. But they did drive Buicks after that. But they gave most of their money away, I think, as far as I know. Uh, But one of the things they did is they helped grandkids go to school. And I was still on a tight budget. But mineral wealth, oil, was just enough money. She was able to give me just enough money that I could just focus on school and I didn't have to work. And a lot of my classmates didn't have that. And, you know, I'm thankful for that. So I can think of all of these things where it's a situation where... Yeah, I put a lot of effort in to get through vet school, but I think of all the things that I am so grateful that the Lord gave me the opportunity to do that. My friends, again, in Papua New Guinea, in Bonacan Village or Farngot or Fatmalak, they don't have those opportunities. They have other opportunities that they can thank the Lord for. But we need to be sure that we're not prideful and think, well, look what I did, and if you didn't do it, well, you're just a loser. We need to, in the scriptures, there's a lot of caution that God gives to his people because he needs to tell us that. Not to show partiality. And one of the areas that partiality shows up a lot, uh, for example, to the Israelites in Leviticus, the Lord's very clear to those Uh, to the Israelites not to show partiality towards their own people and mistreat foreigners that are living there. You know the place, you know where Jesus, um, he's reciting from Leviticus where he says, love your neighbor as yourself. 
He's quoting from a place where it's talking about how Israelites teach each other. But if you're familiar with that passage, in that same passage, just a few sentences later, he says exactly the same thing about any foreigners that are living among you. You be sure that you don't give them a hard time. You treat them the same way as you do your own people and not show partiality because you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be the underdog foreigner living in a foreign land. At the same time, when you look at James in the book of James in the New Testament being written to Christians, there's a lot of warning about not showing partiality. Now, when you think about all the things that are talked about in the book of James, what do they nearly all have in common? They're all nearly all actually related to differences in wealth. It may not be apparent to you at first when you read that, but a lot of it has to do with the poor and the rich. Now, I want to be real careful here. I do not think that James is saying that the unequal distribution of wealth is the cause of the troubles in the, the sinful behavior that he's addressing. But what he is saying is that the situation of the unequal distribution of material wealth and opportunity, that situation is one in which we may have a sinful response and behave in sinful ways because of the way we think about it. That's a big difference, and I hope you hear what I'm saying because I think it's what the Lord's saying. He's not saying that causes sin, but he's saying we may respond in a sinful way. And one of the things he addresses in James, and it's in a lot of the books in the epistles, is for people that are prospering to become prideful and look down their nose at people that are not prospering as much. And that's a caution to God's people, and that's what God is telling them to Israel in the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So, we see, first of all, that in terms of achievement and successes, those are gifts from God, and we need to be thankful. We need to be thankful that God gives the resources, and we need to recognize that if we have the ability to use those resources because of the circumstances that we're in, those are all gifts from God. And be thankful and not be puffed up and arrogant about it. And recognizing them as a gift goes a long way to saying, you know, there are hard things in my life, but God's given me a lot of good things too. So the next step, the next big step is what about when we don't have success? What about when things don't work out? Either because we just mess up or we didn't know how to do it or because things are completely out of our control that we don't have any control over at all. How do we view that? Well, it's, we're told that we need to recognize that the unpredictable and frustrating nature of life is God's plan. It's supposed to be like that. And we need to trust God that he is in control. So let's look at the first part of this. And we're going to go in Ecclesiastes here. And the first part is that we are not, we need to, grasp that God has shown us that we are not supposed to be able to predict and control all our circumstances and outcomes. So don't be surprised by that and beat your head against the wall thinking, what's wrong? Because I can't control everything. 
Well, nothing's wrong. You're not supposed to be able to. God set it up that way. Now I want to say something about Ecclesiastes. Um, a lot of you have been here a long time. Know that Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. I probably studied it more nearly any other book in the Bible. And every four or five years, I get up here and I preach Ecclesiastes. So some of you have heard this multiple times. But to understand, it, it's easy to get lost in Ecclesiastes. Remember what's happening in Ecclesiastes is that it's written as similar to the way a lot of the Psalms are. Okay? And what happens in a lot of the Psalms? The writer is talking about some complaint he has, some injustice or some suffering, um, something that he doesn't think is going right and he doesn't like. And he's really battling, becoming angry and bitter about it and wondering what's going on. But what will the psalmist do then? He will remind himself of who God is and what God is like how he looks after his people. And the psalmist quiets his soul and rests in the fact God's got it. This is hard. I don't like it. But I trust God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relax. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing. He's going to go, depending on how you count it, he's going to make this cycle about five times. And what he's talking about specifically is it appears that wisdom doesn't work. That's his problem. You try hard. You try to study it out. uh, You do things as well as you can. You apply the wisdom you have. And over and over and over, things don't work. Things crash and burn. Often because we can't predict what's going to happen. There's natural disasters. He goes on and on. All kinds of injustices in life. Uh, It looks like there's no justice. And what he'll do is start talking about how frustrated he is about that. It's just ruining his life. Some of the things he says, I hated all the fruit of my labor. It's grievous to me. I hated life. I completely despaired. Life is painful and grievous. Even at not night, my mind doesn't rest. I eat in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Have you ever laid in your bed at night with sickness, vexation, and anger? But what he's going to do is he's going to... Talk about all different kinds of situations in life that don't seem fair. They're unjust. They're unpredictable. And he's frustrated. But what will he do? Over and over again, he will then remind himself of God's character and what he's like. If you think of Ecclesiastes as just being a book full of just sourness, go back again with a colored pencil and underline All of the positive affirmations that the writer makes about God. It's full of them. And what he does is he reminds himself of that. And then he goes back to this refrain that he does five times. That if you pull it out, you might think it's a, well, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when he's encouraging people that there's nothing better for a man 
than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. What he's saying is, you know, when we remind ourselves of who God is and that he is in control, then all the hard things in life won't ruin us and turn us into a sour old man so we can't even enjoy the good things. You know, we're not supposed to be able to predict and control our circumstances and outcomes. That's Genesis 3 in this audience. We don't need to go back and read Genesis 3. In fact, we read that last week, didn't we? He's referring to the curse that God deliberately made life frustrating and difficult. Why? It is to remind us that we're not the creator and we're not in control. And that's what Ecclesiastes is going to say. He's going to say that the reason life is like this, and we're going to read a bunch of these verses in a moment, that the reason life is like that is God is teaching us and reminding us that we are creatures and not the creator, and we need to be dependent on him. And then Paul says the same thing in Romans 8 when he talks about all of creation is subjected to futility And the Greek word that Paul uses there, futility, is the one that the Jews use when they translated Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, vanity of vanities. The Greek word that they use to translate that in the Septuagint, that's what the word that Paul uses in Romans 8, because that's what he's talking about. Genesis 3 tells us how and why life became so frustrating. Ecclesiastes is talking about how we can live in this life. In Romans 8, God is telling us through Paul that God, God's saying, at some point, I'm going to straighten all this out and fix it. But Ecclesiastes is where we are now. But what he tells us over and over is God can and does control all our circumstances and outcomes for our good. Remember in the Deuteronomy passage where it's God is reminding the people, I led you out in the wilderness where there wasn't a lot of stuff and life was hard. And what did he say? Why did he do that? He said, I did it for your good. It's going to help you. He does it for our good. So I'm going to read some extended passages here in Ecclesiastes. Um, The first one I'm going to read is from chapter 3. And this is, again, an often misunderstood passage, but where it's where he's explaining the fact that we're not supposed to be able to know and predict uh, everything. He says there's an appointed time for everything and there's a time for every event under heaven. There's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what's planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. There's a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up is lost. There's a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What benefit or long-term benefit is there to the worker from all that he does works in this life? Now listen, what's the point that the writer is making with all of this? I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate, in Hebrew, beautiful. It's appropriate in its time. But he's also set eternity in their heart 
And yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning even to the end. It may not be immediately clear if you're not familiar with the rest of the book. But what the writer is saying is God has put in our understanding that there's something eternal about our existence. But he has deliberately made it in such a way that we don't know what that's going to be. The whole point of this passage is not that if you're clever, you can figure out what's the time for this and what's the time for that. And then you'll do the right thing. The whole point of the passage is you and I don't know what that is. But God does. And God is going to assign those times in our life according to his wisdom. And that's why in verse 12 he says, So I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that man should fear him. God has so orchestrated the way the world works that we have daily reminders that we are not in control. How many of you have already had a reminder this morning, you are not in control? <laughs> but we can rest in that we're not supposed to be. I'm going to read an extended section starting in about the middle of chapter 5. Uh, again, to see how the writer's going to go back and forth. He's going to acknowledge things in life that we don't have control over that are hard and frustrating. They're not fair. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of things in life that aren't fair. So how do we respond? Do we just stay mad all the time and just die a bitter old man? Listen to what he says. I'm going to start reading chapter 5, verse 10. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor the one who loves abundance with its income. And this, too, is just a vapor. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. Hey, if you win the lottery... How many friends and relatives come out of the woodwork, right? So what's the advantage to the owners except to just look on? Now, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man, it doesn't allow him to sleep. And this is a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun. That's an expression he uses for just life in this world. That rich is being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, he fathered his son. There was nothing to support him. As he come naked from his mother's womb, so he'll return as he came. He'll come. He'll take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as the man is born, thus will he die. So what lasting profit is there to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. You know, if we think about it, this is where he's saying he was going down that road is life is hard and then you die. But look at him turn. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him. I don't know 
how many years God's going to give me or my grandchildren, but he's given us some so far. For to enjoy these things is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given, we read this earlier, every man whom God has given riches and wealth and has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he'll not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Can we be honest? It's really easy for us to be like a spoiled teenager that when his parents give him $100, he's mad because his parents didn't give him $200. And we can do that with God where there are, in fact, things in our life that are very painful and very tragic. But we stay so busy being mad at God that we don't see all the blessings that he has absolutely showered us with. That's what's happening to Naomi at the beginning of the book of Ruth. Well, I'm going to continue reading in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 that we read earlier. So what should we do? We should consider the work of God. For who's able to straighten what he has bent? Is everybody here okay with that? Who he is? He is God. What is bent? His creation. And what does it mean that it's bent? That's Genesis 3. That's the curse. God has intentionally made life where it's full of frustration. That's the point of the book. So in the day of prosperity, be happy. God has given that to you as a gift. But in the day of adversity, become a sour old man and bellyache and curse God's name. No. Consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not be able to discover the future. It's God's intent that we recognize our dependence on him and be thankful to him for the good things. I'm going to pick up reading again in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter verse 10. And again, he's going to talk about the injustice in life. So then I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they're soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. And this, too, is <clears throat> a vapor or perplexing. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Okay, we all know that, too, right? A lot of people get away with something, and so they conclude, okay, crime does pay. We see that happen. But listen to what he's going to say next. This is, one of, <laughs> this is one of the most powerful statements of faith in all of Scripture. Chapter 8, verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times in length of his life, yet still I know it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man. And he will not lengthen his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear God. I want to pause here a moment and point out. It was just struck me recently. <clears throat> that what the writer is doing here is exactly the opposite. Of what Eve does in Genesis 3. 
Because what Eve does is with her own eyes in her own evaluation of looking at her creation around her, she's looking at that tree and that fruit. She's looking at that and deciding what she's going to do. And she concludes that she's going to trust what her eyes say, what her eyes are telling her, and she is going to disregard and ignore what God has said and said, I'm going to trust what I see. And she chooses to sin. The writer here does exactly the opposite because he says, my eyes, my observation, and my observation, in my analysis is life is not fair and crime pays and the criminals get away with it a hundred times. That's what I see. But I don't believe it. Because that's not what God said. I haven't seen it. But I trust God's word more than I trust my eyes. There's a perplexity which is done on the earth, and that is there are righteous men in whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I, I say this too. This is, this is perplexing. So what do we do? We throw in the towel? He says, become sour? He says, no. I commanded pleasure. For there's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toil throughout the days of his life, which God has given him in this life. When I gave my heart to know wisdom, to, to figure all this out, and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. That is, a lot of what God does is a mystery. Even though man should seek laboriously, will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he can't discover. For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Wow. Now, don't get thrown off because my English translation says, man doesn't know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. You have to know about Hebrew. He's not talking about... God hates Suzanne, so he's going to stomp on her life. No, what he's saying is we don't know when God is going to give us pleasant times and when he's going to put hardship in our, in our life. That's what he's talking about there. So what do we do? We trust God. He is in control. You know, um, I've shared this before. I asked Carrie, if it was all right, but Carrie's, Carrie's daddy passed away of, uh, of cancer at a fairly young age. He passed away a month before I met Carrie, so I never met Bill. I never met my mother-in-law, Ruby's husband. So that was a long time ago he died, uh, died of cancer. And Car- Carrie and I met, and um, we got married. And some years later, she was spending time in the Scriptures, and she came out. She just had... <laughs> Tears streaming down her face. And she said, you know, I've always felt like my daddy died before his time. Because he was so young. But uh, 
Carrie, Carrie said, the Lord's finally brought me to the point where I honestly can know that he didn't die before his time. He just died before we wanted him to. But he died at the right time. Now, there's not a day goes by, I'm sure, that my wife and my mother-in-law don't miss Bill after over 40 years that he's been gone, that they miss him, and that's hard. But what neither one of them has done is go through life bitter and angry at God and failing to thank God for all the other blessings that he has showered them with. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes and what all through the scripture the Lord is asking us to do. Trust me in the hard stuff. Does God know what it's like to suffer? To suffer injustice? He certainly does. But when God allows those things in our life, that's for our good. And we can trust him even if we can't explain it. So what's the conclusion? It's what we've already read. When times are good, be happy. Don't be embarrassed about enjoying the success that God has given you. If you're good at something, enjoy that and share it with people. I love that when the musicians get up here and, and they know how to do that, instead of just hiding in a closet somewhere. <laughs> no, God's given them ability and they enjoy it. Share it with us. That is, that is neat. If you're good at your job, good, do that. Share it with your customers. But in the day of adversity, know this. God's got it. He loves you. Let's pray.